And uh, the young lady uh, that was observing, uh, it took hours of conversation to persuade her that uh, she should remain committed to counseling. Uh, She knew this couple needed help, and she knew they needed help from the scriptures, but she wasn't sure if she was the one that should be the kind of person who would give help to these kinds of people. I actually worked to persuade her not to drop out of the program and to stick with it. And she did it reluctantly, but what made her actually stay and complete her degree program, and now she actually uh, does um, uh, uh, crisis pregnancy counseling in a crisis pregnancy center in a different part of the country. What made her stick with it was not the argument that I made in the week after that disastrous meeting. What made her stick with it was coming back for counseling and watching this couple change. Uh, Over the course of three or four months, she got to see a married couple change. She got to see a man who had been unfaithful literally since he had been engaged to his wife. He started having sex with other women after they got engaged. And and so there was no point in their marriage when he was ever faithful to her. But he saw, uh, she saw this student, saw this man change. She saw this woman change. And what persuaded her uh, was not an argument that I made that this was important, but when she saw the Holy Spirit show up and change people. Counseling. Sometimes I think we're stuck with this word that we have to fight against because it really doesn't communicate what we're doing. Uh, people hear counseling and they hear, well, that's not me. That's for, that's for somebody else. It's for people who have that calling. It's for people who have those skills. What we're really talking about is change. We're talking about people in desperate need of change. And God set the whole thing up so that that change happens through a conversation through an exchange of wisdom. We get to participate as counselors, if you want to call us that. We get to participate as counselors in the most amazing, beautiful, and important process that exists in the creation. We get to watch people change. Uh, I always tell people, in fact, I told that young woman, uh, I don't do counseling because of the first meeting. I do counseling because of the last meeting. If I had for the rest of my ministry just had to have a series of first meetings over and over and over and over again, I couldn't do it. But when you watch couples move from sitting on opposite ends of a sofa with as many pillows and everything stacked in between them as possible, and over the course of two months, over the course of six months, over the course of ever how long it is, you watch these couples slowly move closer together. Uh, you uh, hear what it's like for them to have fun on a date night again. Um, You hear a a young woman who actually can extend forgiveness to a father who she'd hated uh, because the Lord has just worked in her life. That's, That's why I'm involved in it, and that's why I hope you would be, is because we get to be a part of the most beautiful reality in the universe, and that is God changing people by his grace. It's a beautiful and a glorious thing. But I'm asked to speak about how can you know if a counselee is really changing because this beautiful and glorious thing can be hard to recognize sometimes. 
That's the sort of bitter irony almost uh, of the beauty of change. As glorious as it is, it can be hard to recognize. Uh, It can be hard to recognize for a couple of different reasons. It can be hard to recognize because problems are hard. You know, I I counseled a man one time who was in his 50s. He had uh, been arrested. He was a member of our church. He'd been arrested uh, for exposing himself to a woman in a gas station. And that just was the top coming off of his life. Uh, There was all sorts of other things uh, that was going on in his life. And the big story, the sort of narrative of his perversion was that his dad had given him uh, pornographic magazines when he was four and said, here you go, son. And so this man that I met with in my office in his 50s uh, had never gone for more than a few days without looking at pornography since he was four years old. I mean, his mind was warped by sexual sin. And uh, he's different now. Thanks be to God. He, uh, his wife was getting ready to leave. She had left. They hadn't divorced, but she was, she was out the door. She had moved away. Uh, their marriage is restored. Uh, he, uh, by the time we quit meeting, he had not uh, looked at pornography in eight months, which was the longest in, he was in his sixth decade of looking at pornography. Uh, and to go, to go eight months without seeing pornography was something that never happened in his life since he was four. Um, but I tell you what, in the early weeks, in the early months of counseling, it was, it was hard to tell if he was changing. Because you take somebody who, he can't imagine a day without looking at pornography for five hours, or six hours, or eight hours. Uh, well, change can be rocky in the first couple of weeks, in the first couple of months. Change can be hard to recognize because our problems are difficult. Change can be difficult to recognize because people often don't engage in counseling in good faith, do they? All kinds of reasons people want to be involved in counseling that has nothing to do with change. Uh, I had a conversation with some elders of um, a very, very large church in, in the country, and they were... Uh, instituting church discipline against a man who was uh, also a serial adulterer. This was just here recently. And uh, this was a leader in the church, and they were going to remove him from fellowship from the church. Uh, But at the last minute, he started rallying, and he started saying, hey, uh, I'm really going to be different now. I want to be different, please. I've realized that I was wrong. I want to be different. He was crying. And uh, before they took this action of removing him, they wanted to be sure, and they, they called, these elders did, a few of them, and they said, hey, how could we know, how could we recognize real change in this man's life? And the problem is, not that these men weren't wise, but that there's all sorts of motivations this man might have had to rally at the last minute before the ultimate decision is made. Um, So our motives are not always pure as we pursue the change process. And then here's a big one. It's hard to recognize real change because we are not God. 
real change, the change that lasts, is change that begins in the heart of man. It begins in the souls of individuals. And we just can't see that. It would be so great if we could. It would be great if we could see it. But, my goodness, there are whole books in the New Testament. Hebrews is written because you can't see it. You can't see the inside of a human being where the real change begins, where the real change matters. And so because I'm not the Lord and I can't see your heart, it's hard to recognize change. But we've got to recognize change. We have to do it. It's crucial that we learn how to recognize change, even though we'll do it in a faltering way. If you don't recognize change, how are you going to proceed in counseling? How are you going to know it's time to move to the next issue uh, if we're not getting change here? Uh, If we don't recognize change, how are we going to help others respond? Imagine a wife who's been physically abused by her husband, and she's asking you, you're her mom, you're her sister, you're her pastor, or you're her counselor. And she wants to know, this guy's been pursuing counseling, this guy's been trying to get help, but I don't know if I should go back home with him alone again. Do you think it's time? Well, the answer to that question is of crucial importance to this woman's health and safety, and it requires that we be able to identify something about the change process. The answer to that question is not, well, yes. And the answer to that question is not, well, of course not. The answer is, well, it all depends. It depends on if this person is really changing. And if this person is really changing, then we'll have one answer. And if the person's not really changing, then we'll have a completely different answer. We need to know because of this church discipline issue. Jesus says, uh, go and uh, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Matthew 18, 15. And if he listens to you, great. But if he doesn't listen to you, then take a couple other people with you. And if he listens to those people, great. But if he doesn't listen, take him before the church. And if he won't listen to the church, then treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is, treat him as though he's not a part of you, of the body. Jesus commands there require that we identify whether someone has listened to us or not. Uh, They require that we be able to diagnose whether change has happened. So change is a glorious thing. It's an incredibly beautiful reality. But it is also a reality that is hard to recognize. But it's a reality that we must be growing in our wisdom to recognize. So we have to have this talk, we have to have this conversation, but how can you tell? How can you recognize this beautiful thing while it's happening? Um, Well, the Bible is really helpful about this. You might imagine I would say something like that. The Bible tells us what change looks like. It describes this beautiful, glorious, important, but hard to identify thing. And it actually does it 
It does it in a lot of different ways, but in the text we're going to look at tonight for just a few moments, it identifies what change looks like almost in the form of a checklist. It like couldn't get any easier. Uh, it's, I mean, if you can imagine a pilot and a co-pilot in a cockpit before takeoff, and they're going through the checklist, and they're just making sure, okay, do we have enough gas? I don't know what they're doing up there, but are the flaps in the right position? And it's just a checkoff. The Bible, and the text we're going to look at tonight, gives us a checkoff to identify real change. In fact, it gives us seven different indicators of real change. And we see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 2. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The Apostle Paul makes this astounding statement He communicates this idea that he is happy that they were sad. It doesn't sound like a very nice thing to say. It sounds like a rather mean-spirited thing to say. I'm happy that you are sad. I said some things to you that made you cry, and I'm thrilled about that. But he's very clear. He's not thrilled that they were sad because he doesn't like them, because he's vindictive, because he wants them to be miserable, he's thrilled that they were sad because the sorrow led to repentance. And repentance leads to life. And so because these people are spiritually alive, he's thrilled and he understands that it took some sorrow to get there because repentance takes some pain. And... As he explains all of this whole reality, he gives us seven indicators of real change. And the first one that he gives is sorrow. He says in verse 8, I made you grieve with my letter, but I don't regret it. I did regret it. 
For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He's talking about grief here. He knew the Corinthians. You know, he's been in this conflict with the Corinthians. He wrote them a hard letter. He wrote, well, he wrote them 1 Corinthians. And then he wrote what gets called the hard letter. If you read 1 Corinthians, that sounds hard enough. That second letter, the hard letter, we don't have in the Bible. Uh, but that's the hard letter. And they could have said, forget this guy. But they responded to the rebuke with repentance. They responded with sorrow. He knew that their position of not coming underneath the apostolic teaching, not following his decrees as a man who had been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he knew they had changed because they were sad. Sorrow is the mark of real change. I uh, I had a man one time that I was counseling who'd been... He's, he's one of the most sexually immoral men I've ever met. I mean, there was no sexual reality that, that he ever denied himself. Any sexual thing he wanted, he took, and he did it for about a decade and a half. Um, and shortly after he'd made a profession of faith we were talking about this issue of his sexuality. And uh, he said, uh, can God forgive me if I'm not sad about what I did? And I said, well, I don't think he will. I don't think God will forgive you if you're not broken over your sin. If there's no sorrow, if there's no grief over your sin... That's not repentance. Uh, Repentance without pain is just what they used to call fire insurance. It's just what what kind of little incantation do I have to say? What kind of bippity-boppity-boo prayer do I have to pray just to make the consequences go away? If there's not real pain, then you don't get that your sin separates you from God. You don't get that your sin brings real consequences into your relationships with others and hurts other people. There has to be sorrow. But the plot thickens because not all sorrow is created equal. Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about two kinds of sorrow. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to death. It kills you. Worldly sorrow is what it sounds like, sorrow over the things of the world. You're sad, you're really sad, you cry, there's pain, but you're sad over the things in the world that you're going to lose. You're sad over the bad things that are going to happen to you. You're sad because you don't want to get kicked off the elder board. You're sad because you don't want your wife to leave. You're sad because you don't want your kids to think you're a jerk. You're sad because you don't want your boss to fire you. You're sad because you're going to lose your money. You're sad because people are going to think you're a creeper. 
But all those are things that have to do with the world. Worldly sorrow leads to death because the logic of the sorrow is the same logic of the sin that you did to commit it in the first place. The logic of sin is I want the things I want and I'm going to do what it takes to get them. And the logic of worldly sorrow is I want the things I want and I don't want them to go away. Nothing's changed. It's all about you. Then there's godly sorrow that leads to life. Godly sorrow leads to life because everything changes with godly sorrow. You're sad about the things of God. You're sad that your sin has broken God's heart. You're sad that your sin has pushed you outside of the realm of divine blessing. Everything changes because now in sin, your life is about you. In godly sorrow, your heart is broken that you've offended the God of the universe who gave his son for you. And so the first indicator of real change is sorrow. If there's no sorrow, we're concerned. But just because we have somebody crying in our office or in our living room doesn't mean we're home free. That means we've got to keep looking at other things. The next indicator is earnestness. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Earnestness. Earnestness is diligence. Worldly sorrow is not earnest. Worldly sorrow uh, sticks around long enough to find out whether you're going to keep the things you want to keep. And if you can't, whether you can replace them with something else you like. And as soon as you find out the sky's not going to cave in on you, worldly sorrow goes away and you go back to what you were doing. Earnestness that follows godly sorrow is diligent months, weeks, years after the revelation has come to continue to fight to change. So... When we talk about earnestness here, what we're looking for is we're looking for somebody who's sad about what they did, and we're looking for somebody who sticks with it over time. That, uh, that phrase, time will tell. My brother, when I got saved, I was 14 years old, and uh, I was a big fat liar before I got saved, and I was mean to my brother, and... Uh, all kinds of stuff. And I did everything a 14-year-old had had time to do back then, um, which it seems is not as many things as 14-year-olds have, have time to do today, but whatever. Um, I was a sinner. And I came in from this weekend away, and I told my twin brother, I'm a Christian. And he said, yeah, right. And I said, no, really, I am. And he said, yeah, right. You're not a Christian. And uh, I said, no, listen, I'm a Christian. I, I repented of my sins. I trusted in Jesus. And he's like, we'll see. Oh, he bugged me to death. Oh, I wanted to kill him. Uh, but you know what? He was right. And we did see. And uh, we just were texting just a few moments ago. Uh, he's looking for, he's getting ready to relocate to Tucson, Arizona, and is looking for a church. And uh, neither one of us knew uh, at 14, we're 37 now, so I don't know what the math is on that. Uh, but nobody knew at 14 that in 37, he'd be asking me for church recommendations in, uh, in Tucson, Arizona. So we did see. Uh, 
What this means is the change process is slow, and we just have to watch. We just have to wait and see. Three, eagerness to be clear. Eagerness to be clear. See what earnestness, verse 11, this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. This can sound confusing for Americans who are used to uh, the criminal justice process. In American criminal justice, when you clear yourself, you prove that you didn't do anything wrong. It's not what's going on here. The Corinthians were guilty. They had committed sin. Uh, So it's not about proving that they hadn't done anything. Now, when Paul talks about eagerness to clear yourselves, he means eagerness to get away from the sin. He's talking about people who will engage in radical measures to get rid of sin. This is an early test after the tears of whether somebody is changing. Will you do the aggressive thing to get this difficulty out of your life? Jesus Christ says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's a radical measure. The Apostle Paul in um, Romans 13 will say, make no provision for the flesh. You have to close the door on every possibility of sin. So, you're uh, fornicating with your boyfriend? All right, you need to break up with him and not be around him. (laughs) What happens there? Is there eagerness to clear yourself? If there's, yes, okay, eagerness to clear myself, I'll, uh, I'll break up with him. How do I do that? Or if there's, you're crazy. This is not eagerness to clear yourself. And we're concerned that this is not real change, but something else. Uh, You're looking at uh, porn on your iPhone. All right, trade it in for a flip phone. I can't have a flip phone. How am I going to look at sports scores on a flip phone? How am I going to text on a flip phone? You have to hit those buttons 4,500 times. Well, are you eager to clear yourself? Um, That's an early test. Will you do what Jesus says and cut off your hand? Will you gouge out your eye? Or are you going to make provision for the flesh? When people are on board, uh, they're ready to go. They want to do what they have to do to clear themselves. A fourth item on the checklist is indignation. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, hatred... There's hatred in people who aren't pursuing change. There's hatred in people who are full of worldly sorrow, but it's hatred of the consequences. Well, I don't want to break up with my boyfriend. I don't want to get a flip phone. I don't want to quit my job. Some people, to change, need to quit their job. That, uh, that first guy I was talk- talking to you about, that, um, um, the first married couple, he was an airline pilot. And he, his route was the Pacific Rim. And uh, he was away for two and three weeks at a time in an area of the world that is thick with prostitution. And he could do anything he wanted for weeks at a time. And uh, he didn't know how to shut it off. He had to quit his job. Yeah, I have to quit my six-figure job. You know what? You do. You can have six figures and go to hell. 
or you can quit and follow Jesus. You pick. You want to cut off your hand? You want to gouge out your eye? He started out hating that. He started out hating me. Uh, That guy might have said more cuss words to me than anybody else in my adult life, actually. But ultimately he realized it wasn't going to work. There is a kind of hatred that comes with worldly sorrow. But there's the kind of hatred that comes with real change is hatred over sin. I hate sin. And if you tell me I got to quit my job, I'll quit my job. If you tell me I got to break up with somebody, I'll break up with somebody. If you tell me I got to quit school, I'll quit school. I hate sin and I want it out. We're looking for people who hate sin. Five, fear. What fear? It's an interesting one. What fear? What kind of fear are we talking about here? I don't know who I'm talking to, but uh, have you guys ever seen Frozen? The movie? Okay, so I have a nine-year-old little girl. So I've probably seen Frozen more than you have. Okay, there's a good, there's a good chance. And if, if I haven't, then I can at least give you a run for your money. Um, and uh, Olaf is my favorite character in Frozen. And uh, my favorite song in Frozen is In Summer. So Olaf, the snowman, and he's this snowman who's daydreaming about summer. And he's like, I just wonder what it'd be like to be sunny and hot. And uh, he says, he sings a song, Bees will buzz. Uh, uh, Kids will blow blow dandelion fuzz. And I'll be doing whatever snow does in summer. (laughs) A drink in my hand, my snow up against the burning sand. Probably getting gorgeously tanned in summer. Uh, I'll something see a summer breeze blow away a winter storm and find out what happens to solid water when it gets warm. Uh, and then he ends, he says, oh, the skies will be blue and you guys will be there. <laughs> when I finally do what frozen things do in summer. Well, poor Olaf, he's a dumb snowman. And he doesn't know that if he gets what he wants, it'll kill him. If he gets this dream, he will die. This is the way sin is. If you get what sin gives, you die. We're idiots. We're dumb people. We're dumb people, and we think sin is going to keep its promise. But it never does. When you get the actual wages of sin, you die. And I look back at my life. Before I got saved, after I got saved, I I, I remember things that I fooled around with. And I was following the promise of sin. And the Lord was so kind to keep me out of it because I'm not dead. I'm not dead. But that's where I was headed. The fear here is fear mingled with mercy. That when we look back at what we should have received from our sin, we should be in the ground six feet under. And we should shiver with fear until we remember the Lord's mercy, that He protected us from that.
What, what do you want to go back to your life of sin for? You were headed to the grave. You should be afraid. You shouldn't have any sense of longing at all. We're looking for people who are afraid of the wages of sin. And they want to run from that to the grace of Jesus. Longing and zeal, number six. What longing and zeal? I put these together because uh, verse 7 does. He says, He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Um, Longing and zeal here in the context is relational longing and zeal. You're longing for relationships to be restored. Sin divides relationships. Think about any break in any relationship that you've ever had. Sin's right there. Anytime there's a break in any human relationship, there's sin there. And people who really want to change have a longing and a zeal to see that division restored. So, when we are looking at somebody in the counseling room and their relationships are frayed and destroyed because of their sin or because of the sins of somebody else, and we talk about being restored in those relationships, and they say, I don't want to bring all that up. Uh, I'm just going to forget about it. Ah, That would be such a hassle. You know how upset they're going to be? They don't even know that I did that. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. We're concerned. This is an absence of longing and zeal. When we see longing and zeal for restored relationships, now we're starting to recognize somebody that the Lord is changing. And then finally, punishment. This is maybe the oddest one on the list. What longing, zeal, what punishment. I, uh, we, we had um, a, a young man in our church who was arrested for drunk driving. And the, um, the attorney that he got was a very good attorney. This was all he did, was drunk driving cases every day, all day long. And he saw his case and he said, uh, all you have to do is plead not guilty. And we're going to make this go away. Because of this and that and this, this is an easy one. It's open, shut, say not guilty, and it goes away. Well, the church had gotten involved because he'd actually called me in the middle of the night to come bail him out. Um, So I went to go do that, and he was very clearly a mess. And so we knew, and the church got involved, and we were trying to help him. It it became clear that he was having a problem drinking. He was having a problem doing drugs. And he's got eyeball deep in the church's biblical counseling ministry real quick and was, was coming along. He was listening to counsel. He was hitting all these signals. But he came back from this meeting with the attorney, and he said, Good news. All I have to do is say not guilty. And it goes away. Isn't that good news? And I said, do you want to die? (laughs) And he said, no, I don't want to die. Well, because worldly sorrow leads to death. And godly sorrow leads to life. And godly sorrow means you're ready to take the punishment. So... Were you drunk driving? Yes, I was drunk driving. Then you have to take the punishment, man. You can't go into that court and say not guilty when that's a lie. You can't do that. 
you have to say guilty and take whatever they give. And that boy did. He said he went back to his, his attorney, thought he was crazy, thought he was part of some cult. We didn't have any, didn't have any gun to his head. He'd go do it. He just, we're like, hey, you can do what you want, but you'll die. Uh, and he didn't want to die. He chose Jesus over not guilty, and he went, and it cost him a bunch of money and a bunch of other things, but he was okay. And in any event, he was different, he was changed. You show me somebody who's squirming away from the punishment of their sin, and I'm going to show you somebody who's not really changing. Sorrow, earnestness, eagerness to be clear, indignation, fear, longing and zeal, and punishment. It goes on to say, at every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. You know what, that, that's really important. It means you can't say, well, I've got the first three, but I haven't done the other four, but I'm okay. It means you can't say, well, I got one and four and seven, but I don't want to do the others. Or what if I do all these other things, but I just say not guilty in court? The text says at every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Not innocent of a sin. Again, he's talking to people who are guilty. Innocent of worldly sorrow. Innocent of the kind of pursuit that leads to death. So what we're doing is we're just asking all along the process. Is this person sad about their sin? Are they earnest? Are they sticking with it? Are they eager to be clear? Are they indignant over sin? Are they full of fear about what might have happened? Are they full of longing and zeal? Are they willing to take the punishment with that... uh, that guy that uh, I told you about who was a leader in this large church and the elders were thinking of, you know, we're kind of at this last step. But now he's saying, I'm really different. I'm going to be on board now. Uh, how do we know? And I said, you know what? Do this. You go to him and you say, you know what? We want to believe you. We want to believe that here at the 11th hour, you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit and you want to be different. So here we go. I read this text to him. I said, you read this text to him. And you say, you know, the Bible says that when you're really repentant, when you're really changing, you'll want to take the punishment. And so, because we don't have enough time to evaluate all this, we are going to uh, continue this process of removal and we want to ask you to embrace that. And we want to ask you to come to the meeting and be in full support and get on board with the program of change that would see you restored. And he flipped out on them. And they knew. It was all smoke and mirrors. It was all smoke and He didn't want the punishment. And at the 11th hour, the acid test, he didn't, he didn't pass it. And that was, that's all just happened here very recently, so I don't even know where the story goes from there. But the point is, you have to have all these together. Now, if you notice, there's... Uh, there's one big reality that we haven't talked about. And it's what about, this text emphasizes change when people are sinning. When the change we're looking at is sin. We haven't talked about change when people are sad and maybe they're dealing with difficulty uh, that they've experienced because of something somebody else did to them or because they're just experiencing difficulty in a fallen world. There's actually a lot of things we could say about that, and that's a whole story for a different day. But just notice this. 
by the time broken people are coming for counseling, even if they didn't start out doing anything bad, usually by the time they need counseling, they've responded to their suffering in some sinful way. They've doubted the goodness of God. Uh, They're holding on to bitterness uh, about somebody else. And so it's not to say that there's nothing we'd want to say to comfort them and to gauge how they're receiving that comfort. But even in so many cases, when we're talking about people who've been victims of suffer, of sin, uh, these can still play a very strong role in whether somebody's able to turn from their sinful response to their suffering. Does that make sense? But the point here is that at every point, we can recognize we got a checklist here. This is one. This is one of those texts. Really, what we've we've looked at for most of the time tonight is one verse. One verse in the Bible, and it's rich with content, with application to broken and troubled people. I, I, I know secular therapists. I've sat in on locked wards and watched these secular therapists try to gauge change, and they don't have anything like what the Word of God gives Christians in just one verse. It's just one verse. It's an absolute treasure trove that God has given to his people. And uh, it's a help, and it helps us know how to gauge this uh, glorious and complicated process we call change. And I hope it's helped to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace of your son Jesus, and we thank you for our time together tonight. We pray for our time together tomorrow that you would build us up in the word of truth that you would make us to love you more, that you'd make us more fit to do ministry in your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.